0: Chapter 2 of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter 2 A Manchester Tea Party. Polly put the kettle on, and let's have tea. Polly put the kettle on, and we'll all have tea. Here we are, wife. Didst thou think thou'd lost us? quoth hardy-voiced Wilson, as the two women rose and shook themselves in preparation for their homeward walk. Mrs. Barton was evidently soothed, if not cheered, by the unburdening of her fears and thoughts to her friend and her approving look went far to second her husband's invitation that the whole party should adjourn from Green Hayes Fields to tea at the Bartons' house. The only faint opposition was raised by Mrs. Wilson, on account of the lateness of the hour at which they would probably return, which she feared on her baby's account. "'Now hold your tongue, Mrs., will you?' said her husband good-temperedly. "'Don't you know them brats never goes to sleep till long past ten. "'and haven't you a shawl under which you can tuck one lad's head "'as safe as a bird's under its wing? "'And as for to other one, I'll put it in my pocket rather than not stay "'now we are this far away from Ancoats. "'Or I can lend you another shawl,' suggested Mrs. Barton. "'Aye, anything rather than not stay.' "'The matter being decided, the party proceeded home, "'through many half-finished streets, all so like one another,' that you might have easily been bewildered and lost your way. Not a step, however, did our friends lose, down this entry, cutting off that corner, until they turned out of one of these innumerable streets into a little paved court, having the backs of houses at the end opposite to the opening, and a gutter running through the middle to carry off household slops, washing suds, etc. The women who lived in the court were busy taking in strings of caps, frocks, and various articles of linen, which hung from side to side, dangling so low that if our friends had been a few minutes sooner, they would have had to stoop very much, or else the half-wet clothes would have flapped in their faces. But although the evening seemed yet early, when they were in the open fields, among the pent-up houses, night, with its mists and its darkness, had already begun to fall. Many greetings were given in exchange between the Wilsons and these women, for not long ago they had also dwelt in this court— two rude lads, standing at a disorderly-looking house-door, exclaimed, as Mary Barton, the daughter, passed, "Eh, look! Polly Barton's gettin' a sweetheart!' For he had gettin' him yet no benefice. Prologue to Canterbury Tales. Of course, this referred to young Wilson, who stole a look to see how Mary took the idea. He saw her assume the air of a young fury, and to his next speech she answered not a word. Mrs. Barton produced the key of the door from her pocket, and on entering the house-place it seemed as if they were in total darkness, except one bright spot, which might be a cat's eye, or might be, what it was, a red-hot fire smoldering under a large piece of coal, which John Barton immediately applied himself to break up, and the effect instantly produced was warm and glowing light in every corner of the room. To add to this, although the coarse yellow glare seemed lost in the ruddy glow from the fire, mrs Barton lighted a dip by sticking it in the fire, and having placed it satisfactorily in a tin candlestick, began to look further about her, on hospitable thoughts intent. The room was tolerably large and possessed many conveniences. On the right of the door, as you entered, was a longish window with a broad ledge. On each side of this hung blue and white check curtains, which were now drawn, to shut in the friends met to enjoy themselves. Two geraniums, unpruned and leafy, which stood on the sill, formed a further defense from outdoor priors. In the corner, between the window and the fireside, was a cupboard, apparently full of plates and dishes, cups and saucers, and some more nondescript articles, for which one would have fancied their possessors could find no use, such as triangular pieces of glass to save carving knives and forks from dirtying tablecloths. However, it was evident Mrs. Barton was proud of her crockery and glass, for she left her cupboard door open with a glance round of satisfaction and pleasure. On the opposite side to the door and window was a staircase, and two doors, one of which, the nearest to the fire, led into a sort of little back kitchen, where dirty work, such as washing up dishes, might be done, and whose shelves served as larder and pantry and storeroom and all. The other door, which was considerably lower, opened into the coal hole, the slanting closet under the stairs, from which, to the fireplace, there was a gay-colored piece of oilcloth laid. The place seemed almost crammed with furniture-sure sign of good times among the mills. Beneath the window was a dresser with three deep drawers. Opposite the fireplace was a table, which I should call a pembroke, only that it was made of deal, and I cannot tell how far such a name may be applied to such humble material. On it, resting against the wall, was a bright green japan tea tray having a couple of scarlet lovers embracing in the middle. The firelight danced merrily on this and really, setting all taste but that of a child's aside, it gave a richness of colouring to that side of the room. It was in some measure propped up by a crimson tea caddy, also of japan ware. A round table on one branching leg, ready for use, stood in the corresponding corner to the cupboard and if you can picture all this with a washy but clean stencil pattern on the walls, you can form some idea of John Barton's home. The tray was soon hoisted down, and before the merry clatter of cups and saucers began, the women disburdened themselves of their out-of-door things and sent Mary upstairs with them. Then came a long whispering and chinking of money to which Mr. and Mrs. Wilson were too polite to attend, knowing, as they did full well, that it was all related to the preparations for hospitality—hospitality that, in their turn, they should have such pleasure in offering. So they tried to be busily occupied with the children, and not to hear Mrs. Barton's directions to Mary. "'Run, Mary, dear, just round the corner, and get some fresh eggs at Tippings. You may get one apiece—that will be five pence—and see if he has any nice ham-cut that he would let us have a pound of.' "'Say two pounds, Mrs., and don't be stingy,' chimed in the husband. Well, a pound and a half, Mary, and get it Cumberland Ham, for Wilson comes from there away, and it will have a sort of relish of home with it he'll like. And Mary, seeing the lassie feigned to be off, you must get a pennyworth of milk and a loaf of bread, mind you get it fresh and new, and-and that's all, Mary. No, it's not all, said her husband. Thou must get six pennyworth of rum to warm the tea, thou'll get it at the grapes, and thou'll just go to Alice Wilson. "'He says she lives just right around the corner, under 14 Barber Street. "'This was addressed to his wife. "'And tell her to come and take her tea with us. "'She'll like to see her brother, I'll be bound, let alone Jane and the twins.' "'If she comes, she must bring a teacup and saucer, "'for we have but half a dozen, and here's six of us,' said Mrs. Barton. "'Poo-poo, Jim and Mary can drink out of one, surely.' but Mary secretly determined to take care that Alice brought her teacup and saucer if the alternative was to be her sharing anything with Jim. Alice Wilson had but just come in. She had been out all day in the fields gathering wild herbs for drinks and medicine, for in addition to her invaluable qualities as a sick nurse and her worldly occupations as a washerwoman, she added a considerable knowledge of hedge and field simples. and on fine days, when no more profitable occupation offered itself, She used to ramble off into the lanes and meadows as far as her legs could carry her. This evening she had returned loaded with nettles, and her first object was to light a candle and see to hang them up in bunches in every available place in her cellar room. It was the perfection of cleanliness. In one corner stood the modest-looking bed with a check curtain at the head, the whitewashed wall filling up the place where the corresponding one should have been. The floor was bricked and scrupulously clean— although so damp that it seemed as if the last washing would never dry up. As the cellar window looked into an area in the street, down which boys might throw stones, it was protected by an outside shutter, and was oddly festooned with all manner of hedgerow, ditch, and field plants, which we are accustomed to call valueless, but which have a powerful effect either for good or for evil, and are consequently much used among the poor. The room was strewed hung and darkened with these bunches which emitted no very fragrant odor in their process of drying in one corner was a sort of broad hanging shelf made of old planks where some old hordes of alices were kept her little bit of crockery ware was ranged on the mantelpiece where also stood her candlestick and box of matches a small cupboard contained at the bottom coals and at the top her bread and basin of oatmeal her frying-pan teapot and a small tin saucepan which served as a kettle, as well as for cooking the delicate little messes of broth which Alice was sometimes able to manufacture for a sick neighbor. After her walk she felt chilly and weary and was busy trying to light her fire with the damp coals and half-green sticks when Mary knocked. Come in, said Alice, remembering, however, that she had barred the door for the night, and hastening to make it possible for anyone to come in. "'Is that you, Mary Barton?' exclaimed she, as the light from the candle streamed on the girl's face. "'How you are grown since I used to see you at my brother's. Come in, lass, come in.' "'Please,' said Mary, almost breathless, "'mother says you're to come to tea and bring your cup and saucer, for George and Jane Wilson is with us and the twins and Jim, and you're to make haste, please.' "'I'm sure it's very neighborly and kind in your mother, and I'll come with many thanks.' "'Stay, Mary. Has your mother got any nettles for spring drink? "'If she hasn't, I'll take her some.' "'No, I don't think she has.' "'Mary ran off like a hare to fulfill what, to a girl of thirteen, fond of power, "'was the more interesting part of her errand—the money-spending part. "'And well and ably did she perform her business, "'returning home with a little bottle of rum and the eggs in one hand, "'while her other was filled with some excellent red-and-white, "'smoke-flavored Cumberland ham wrapped up in paper.' She was at home and frying ham before Alice had chosen her nettles, put out her candle, locked her door, and walked in a very foot-sore manner as far as John Barton's. What an aspect of comfort did his house-place present after her humble cellar! She did not think of comparing, but for all that she felt the delicious glow of the fire, the bright light that reveled in every corner of the room, the savory smells, the comfortable sounds of a boiling kettle, and the hissing, frizzling ham. With a little old-fashioned curtsey, she shut the door, and replied with a loving heart to the boisterous and surprised greeting of her brother. And now all preparations being made, the party sat down. Mrs. Wilson in the post of honor, the rocking chair, on the right-hand side of the fire nursing her baby, while its father, in an opposite armchair tried vainly to quiet the other with bread soaked in milk. Mrs. Barton knew manners too well to do anything but sit at the tea-table and make tea, though in her heart she longed to be able to superintend the frying of the ham, and cast many an anxious look at Mary as she broke the eggs and turned the ham with a very comfortable portion of confidence in her own culinary powers. Jim stood awkwardly leaning against the dresser, replying rather gruffly to his aunt's speeches, which gave him, he thought, the air of being a little boy, whereas he considered himself as a young man, and not so very young neither, as in two months he would be eighteen. Barton vibrated between the fire and the tea table, his only drawback being a fancy that every now and then his wife's face flushed and contracted as if in pain. At length the business actually began. Knives and forks, cups and saucers made a noise, but human voices were still, for human beings were hungry and had no time to speak. Alice first broke silence. Holding her teacup with the manner of one proposing a toast, she said, "'Here's to absent friends.' friends may meet, but mountains never. It was an unlucky toast or sentiment, as she instantly felt. Everyone thought of Esther, the absent Esther, and Mrs. Barton put down her food and could not hide the fast-dropping tears. Alice could have bitten her tongue out. It was a wet blanket to the evening, for though all had been said or suggested in the fields that could be said or suggested, everyone had a wish to say something in the way of comfort to poor Mrs. Barton, and a dislike to talk about anything else while her tears fell fast and scalding. So George Wilson, his wife and children, set off early home, not before, in spite of malaproposed speeches, they had expressed a wish that such meetings might often take place, and not before John Barton had given his hearty consent, and declared that as soon as ever his wife was well again, they would have just such another evening. I will take care not to come and spoil it," thought poor Alice, and going up to Mrs. Barton she took her hand almost humbly and said, "'You don't know how sorry I am, I said it.' To her surprise, a surprise that brought tears of joy into her eyes, Mary Barton put her arms round her neck and kissed the self-reproaching Alice. You didn't mean any harm, and it was me as was so foolish, only this work about Esther and not knowing where she is lies so heavy on my heart. Good night, and never think no more about it. God bless you, Alice. Many and many a time, as Alice reviewed that evening in her after-life, did she bless Mary Barton for these kind and thoughtful words. But just then all she could say was, Good night, Mary, and may God bless you. End of chapter 2. Recording by Leanne Howlett.